0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Long before the January 6th insurrection, far-right extremist groups had been gathering members to take back their country from what they saw as dark forces plotting against them. Like the government with its COVID lockdowns and protesters who demanded racial justice and police accountability. In 2020, longtime journalist Luke Mogelson started reporting on this growing discord, talking with groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys and Patriot Militias. And he was there on the day the U.S. Capitol was attacked. In his new book, The Storm Is Here, Mogelson traces the evolution of extremism and the factors that ignited the far-right movement, including the many conspiracy theories and a now former president who spoke directly to these extremist groups. Mogelson joins us where we live. Coming up, we also talk about a new Anti-Defamation League report that uncovers who's listed as members of one extremist group. Hearst Connecticut reports 476 state residents were among 38,000 people nationwide who were listed on the Oath Keepers membership database. We hear from the Anti-Defamation League. That's later. First joining us on Zoom is Luke Mogelson, author of The Storm Is Here, An American Crucible. I mentioned he's a longtime correspondent, has worked for The New Yorker, and has covered the wars in Iraq and uh, in Syria, the Ebola epidemic, and social unrest in the U.S. Luke, welcome to our show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: There is an excerpt of Luke Mogelson's new book, The Storm Is Here, on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. So, Luke, how do you begin to cover militia groups in the United States?
1: Well, you basically just uh, show up at their publicly held events. Um, I was living in France at the beginning of the pandemic when I started to see uh, reports, footage and images of um, some of these groups mobilizing against the early uh, COVID-19 um uh, public health measures, especially in states like Michigan. So I just flew to uh, to Michigan and, and started attending their rallies and, and speaking with them.
0: So when you were living abroad before you took this assignment, did you recognize the country that you were seeing? Uh, these, these protests and a lot of this discord uh, that was growing?
1: Not really. I mean, the, some of these images were were pretty striking to me. I hadn't lived in the U.S. for about 10 years. Um, I'd been covering the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and Syria. So to see Americans wearing flak jackets and carrying semi-automatic rifles um, and occupying state houses, accosting lawmakers, um, was a kind of perturbing echo of some of the things I had seen in, in uh, foreign conflict zones. Mm.
0: That's interesting when you think about your transition from reporting in conflict zones, whether Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, thinking about the grievances of the people on the ground there, and then contrasting it with what uh, these extremist groups were upset about. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. I mean, mo- in almost every civil war that I've covered, Um, the participants, the combatants and, and uh, the men willing to uh, kill and be killed uh, for their cause genuinely have real uh, grievances and, and injuries that they either want to avenge or or remedy. Um, And a lot of them even have the scars to prove it, or have lost family members or have lost their villages or or homes or have been imprisoned uh, by dictatorial uh governments. Um in contrast, you know, the far right in the in the US is almost entirely uh galvanized uh, and animated by fictional uh villains and and antagonists who have been uh, fabricated whole cloth by purveyors of uh Conspiracy theories and and uh, politicians who promote uh, nativist ideologies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Before I ask you about what it was like uh, to go to these events by these uh, these Michigan militias, I'm wondering if you can define for us when we talk about, you know, far-right extremist groups in the U.S. Are they all white supremacists? Are they all anti-government? Uh, talk through when we see the overlaps here, and what are some of the other causes that, that bring them uh, to these organizations?
1: Well, they're certainly all anti-government um, by any Reasonable description of of that term. I wouldn't classify them all as white supremacists. Um, I mean, there are you can even find you know black proud boys, for example. Um, but the general uh, mobilization uh, that they are a part of is certainly uh, is certainly energized and led by. People who are white supremacists, anti-Semites, and also who subscribe um, to ideologies that are that are pretty uh, pretty clearly anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ, anti-Semitic, etc. So whether or not those certain individuals are or aren't, you know, uh, quote unquote white supremacists. Mm the the movement that they're that they're part of uh, uh, leans heavily on on those ideas. Mm.
0: So take us to Michigan in 2020 uh, when you went to these events, and it seemed like COVID restrictions at the time uh, was really uh, propelling them forward uh, in their movement. Uh, tell us what you saw and heard.
1: Yeah, I, I think that for a lot of. Uh, the Michiganders who were part of the anti-lockdown movement, which was one of the first in the country, um, and, and which kind of set the tone for other states and the national uh mobilization against uh public health policies related to COVID-19. For them, uh what they were seeing was just kind of validation or confirmation of uh deep-seated paranoia's about uh government overreach that they uh that that they had um before the pandemic and that ran the gamut uh from uh outlandish conspiracy theories about you know the deep state and the new world order uh to just more kind of uh traditional Uh, conservative leeriness of uh, federal and and state uh, interference and individual liberties um, like gun control, for example.
0: Mm. And we remember uh, the the plan uh, for some militia members uh, to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitmer. And so when you're talking with them about, you know, what, these uh, militia members, what brought them you know, to these events, uh, why they were standing against the government. You know, I'm just wondering if you can talk more about what that was like when they, and how they approached you as a journalist.
1: Yeah, well, it evolved. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some of, I actually uh, spent a bit of time with and, and spoke with um, some of the guys who were accused of um, being involved in that plot Adam Fox and uh, William Knoll and his twin brother. Um, the, the Knolls were part of uh, the Michigan Liberty Militia, which uh, was partly responsible for that first rally. And on April 30th, where they entered the state house with, uh, with weapons. And um, I subsequently attended other rallies, um, including one in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, just a couple weeks later. Uh, where uh, the Knowles uh, actually shared a stage with the Michigan State Senate leader, a Republican named Mike Shirkey, And Shirky, who after the initial uh, April 30th rally had condemned and disavowed uh, the protesters that entered the Capitol, uh, calling them a bunch of jackasses, he uh, then went on to stand on this stage in Grand Rapids with them, praise them, and tell them that um, they needed to stand up to this government and, uh, that, uh, quote, we need you now more than ever. So, you know, from the very beginning, there was, uh, there was a, an explicit endorsement by the Republican establishment of these groups and of their, uh, use of, of violence and the threat of violence, uh, to achieve political, uh, aims. Um, I also was at a rally on June eighteenth, um, another once again at the at the state capitol in Lansing, where Adam Fox, uh, one of the leaders of the Wolverine Watchmen militia that ended up being accused of plotting to kidnap the governor, uh, had a had a very heated standoff with an um, exchange with um, black counter pro- protesters, and this was in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death. So that was interesting to see as well, because prior uh, to to Floyd's murder, most of these groups had been very explicitly anti-law enforcement and had decried uh, and and castigated officers for enforcing some of these COVID nineteen policies. After Floyd was killed, they you know shifted to backing the blue, uh, and uh, I saw that at that June eighteenth rally with with Adam Fox and William Noll was there as well. Mm.
0: You're hearing Luke Mogelson here, Where We Live. Uh, he's the author, a longtime journalist of the book, The Storm is Here, an American Crucible. You can read an excerpt on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Uh, yes, he writes and explores uh, the growth of the far right extremism mm-hmm. movement in our country. You can join us, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, you know, you spent some time with these militias. You also talked, as you've said, to members of some of these groups that we have seen in the news, especially after the January 6th insurrection, like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. But in your book, you also spend time with uh, members of what is known as Antifa uh, in in Portland. Tell us about why you did that and what you learned.
1: Well, so in the summer of 2020, again, after George Floyd was killed and in the context of these uh, national protests and and this historic kind of uprising for police accountability and uh, racial justice, uh, Trump and and his allies um, and and other uh, pundits and and politicians essentially uh, uh, undertook to discredit and dismiss the demands of these racial justice protesters by villainizing them as Antifa. Um, And I wanted to know, you know, what that was. What was Antifa? I had never met anybody who identified as Antifa. But suddenly, um, you know, you 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 heard it everywhere as this um, referred to as this uh, existential threat to our country and, and national security and all of these groups that I had been following, these these uh, far right groups who had previously been mobilizing against uh, COVID-19 policies, were suddenly also adopting this rhetoric uh, used by the president and talking about Antifa and holding armed rallies uh, against Antifa. So. As a journalist I was just curious to find out, you know, was this com- a complete invention, um a foil or was there some uh uh factual basis uh to it and and so that's why I went to Portland because uh according to the president that's where uh that's where Antifa that's where the Antifa headquarters was. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, you, earlier you talked about the role of conspiracy theories and uh, those uh, that are peddling a lot of of what is being uh, shared on social media. Uh, i wonder if you can talk more about that and how they influence these groups that you were talking to on the ground.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, key to this, key to uh, this movement and the energy uh, behind this movement, which is real and and intense and. Uh, can be very effectively weaponized by uh, by people in power, as we saw on January 6, is a sense of victimhood and persecution um, and uh, a, a, a genuine uh, emotional experience of uh, being oppressed and constantly being threatened by um, pernicious, uh, all-powerful forces. So Given the fact that uh, most of these people aren't actually oppressed or, or persecuted, uh, and have historically, you know, even been um, been privileged in our society compared to other demographics, um, given all of that, they have to invent uh, sources of impression. and that's uh, and that's where uh, conspiracy theories come in handy uh, to provide these kind of These fictional uh, villains that allow uh, the far right both to identify as victims um, and to justify their militancy.
0: There's also a lot of uh, Nazi uh, that um, language that's used uh, by some of these uh, followers, especially when we talk about the the early days of the pandemic and how uh, you describe them as the anti-lockdowners who who use this kind of language. And I'm wondering if you can you know unpack that for us as well.
1: Sorry, I, I lost you for one second. You, who use what kind of language? Uh, well,
0: a lot of uh, you know. Uh, mention of, of Nazis and Nazism uh, by some of these members, especially right. in the early days of the pandemic, uh, and you would use the term the anti-lockdowners that that use this language. I'm wondering if you can unpack that for us.
1: Right. Well, it's kind of complicated because there were reports uh, early on of you know swastikas and Nazi iconography at some of these anti-lockdown events, and what I found was that was true, but they weren't employed as uh tributes to nazism it was uh it was more that the anti-lockdowners uh were uh accusing the democratic governor and other uh, other proponents of covid uh, 19 health policies a- a- of being nazis so they saw themselves as uh victims uh, in the same way that um, Jewish people were victims of the Third Reich. And obviously that kind of equivalence is is, is its own kind of anti-Semitism um, in that to the extent that it uh, diminishes the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, but I think it's also just very telling and revealing of how uh profoundly uh, these people believed in their own uh victimhood that f- for them it was it was not an exaggeration uh to compare you know lockdown policies uh with concentration camps.
0: Mm. There was a point that you raised in the book that, that I wanted to highlight to that point, Luke, uh, when we think about um, how they, they feel that they are victims, but at the same time, some of those uh, members telling you, you know, we're here for everybody, but, you know, during the, the George W. Bush administration, these militias were fairly quiet uh, during a time when the administration infringed on, on personal uh, liberties. Can you yeah. tell us more there?
1: Well, exactly, and that's simply because I think uh, the... Targets of that uh, historic government overreach, surveillance, um, et cetera, were Muslims and immigrants. And uh, it was, you know, it's also kind of revealing that after being almost entirely dormant for the entire uh, Bush era, where you had uh, incredible uh, overreach by the FBI, NSA, and other federal agencies um they all these groups came roaring out of hibernation as soon as uh, barack obama was elected um and although it was uh under the pretext of fearing uh that their guns would be taken away uh it's important to remember that a vast majority of them uh believe that a he wasn't an American citizen, and be that uh, he was a Muslim.
0: My guest today is Luke Mogelson, author of The Storm Is Here, An American Crucible. He's a longtime correspondent for The New Yorker and has covered the wars in Iraq and Syria. Also, the social unrest in the U.S. uh, Again, his new book tracks uh, the growth of far-right extremism in the U.S. We'll be talking with him more after a short break. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest is journalist Luke Mogelson. In his new book, he explores the rise of extremism in the U.S., The book is called The Storm is Here, an American Crucible. He takes us first to Michigan, where militias and others protested against COVID restrictions and then traces the factors that led to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. He was there. Part of his book looks at why conspiracy theories have become so prominent on the far right. And Mogelson talks to militia members and groups like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. He writes, they are all working towards a common aim of protecting America against the forces they see trying to deprive them. And as he pointed out in the last segment, the irony that this sense of victimhood is coming from the most privileged in our society. Luke is with us here on Zoom. So take us to January 6th, because as you mentioned earlier, you'd met some people uh, that you would later see there at the US Capitol.
1: Yeah, in, in, including um, some of the anti-lockdown activists that I had met in Michigan in, back in, in May, in the, in the spring of 2020. Um, I actually saw two of the leaders of, of that movement um, in the mob that was uh, assaulting police officers um, on the steps of the Capitol before they were able to breach, uh, the building. And you were, and I'll just, yeah. sorry, I'll just add And some other folks that I recognized, um, were from, uh, from Washington and Portland, mm-hmm. some of the, um, members of a group called uh, Patriot prayer that, uh, I had seen, um, that I had seen, uh, uh, clashing with anti fascists and black lives matter activists uh, in Portland ov- over the summer
0: what was that like for you to be caught up uh, in that that mob and to see that violence firsthand Luke
1: um, well it was uh, it was surprising I wasn't expecting it to uh, get to that point though i was anticipating violence because there had been two previous rallies in dc uh, on november 14th and on december 12th that had been largely overlooked uh both by law enforcement and and um by the press uh but at both of those events which i which i had covered as well uh there were all the same groups, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the different three-percenter militias, the America Firsters. And they were um, attacking uh, Black pedestrians and cyclists. They were vandalizing historic Black churches. They were attacking uh, gay-owned businesses. Um, and the rage had been you know, just mounting and mounting. Um, and I had witnessed that. You know firsthand, so I knew that on January 6 something uh, was going to happen. I didn't know that it would be a mob assault on the U.S. Capitol until you know Trump's speech when he directed everybody up the National Mall to uh, to the Capitol. Mm-hmm.
0: So you were tear gassed at the, at the Capitol. How did you keep going?
1: Uh, well, I mean, tear gas, you know, only lasts for a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and then and then you're fine uh, but I was also pepper sprayed ah. uh, but and that's a bit worse <laughs> um, but that too you know after after 10 or 15 minutes you can you can see again and and it's fine mm. uh, so so yeah just uh, it, it wasn't the first time and uh, that I'd been pepper sprayed in tear gas so uh, so I wasn't too too worried about it. Mm.
0: I would mentioned, you know, reading the press reports, watching the, the video firsthand, listening to interviews. We all have an idea of what happened that day. But what, what, what really struck you with what you were seeing in front of you, including how the police responded? You had mentioned, you know, there had been more police presence uh, in, in other events. Uh, and mm-hmm. certainly everyone still wonders how this could have happened that the Capitol Police were overcome.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I had covered the protests and the riots in in Minneapolis over the summer um, and had witnessed just unbelievable uh, police brutality against peaceful protesters. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that to uh, gloss over or just, you know, the fact that there were uh, serious riots in Minneapolis, but a lot of the police violence that happened there uh and this is something people for don't realize i think uh actually took place after the riots were already over when people were peacefully uh assembling and it was really uh just vengeance for uh, against other protesters for what had taken place uh, in the initial 3 days after uh George Floyd's death and and it was brutal you know you had almost 90 uh more sorry more than 90 uh protesters hospitalized some of them in their late 70s some of them as young as 12 years old Um, and so that compared with what took place at the Capitol in terms of law enforcement readiness and deployment of force uh it, it, it is was was really really striking um and then add on top of that the fact that there were these two previous rallies, which I had mentioned, in D.C., where the same uh, agencies, the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, and the Park Police, had seen themselves uh, what these groups were capable of. Their unpreparedness on January 6th is something I still don't understand, and I haven't heard any um any, uh, bel- any, any any good excuses for it.
0: Mm. You know, earlier I mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, there was a former president and Donald Trump that was speaking directly to those extremist groups. Uh, can you talk more about that and the ways the, that uh, Donald Trump communicated and how you saw these members when you were talking with them respond?
1: Yeah, he... Uh, has an uncanny ability to um, to electrify uh, these audiences. And I'm not, to be honest, entirely sure what it is because I've attended his speeches and rallies and I find them to be pretty disjointed and incoherent and not especially uh, moving or inspiring. I don't think he's a, a very talented orator. And yet, you know, when you're in the crowd at these things, um, people are just they just go absolutely wild uh, in a way that you you, you never see it uh, on the left or the right at any other um, uh, political events. So, you know, there was one moment in particular, which is a pretty good example of this on January 6th when he was giving his speech from the ellipse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in the crowd uh, on the National Mall w- watching him and there was this. Very uh, palpable sense of suspense and expectation because nobody really knew what he was going to say if he was really going to go through with it and tell them, you know, to do something. Um, so when he, there was a moment in his speech when he started to go over some of the uh, some of the allegations about fraud in Georgia and Wisconsin and Arizona um, and you could kind of feel people getting a little bored with it, um, because we'd just come out of two months of, of this and they were all familiar with the, with the theories. And I think, you know, he has such a good sense for, uh, what his followers are, are, are feeling and thinking and, um, that he, he would, he seemed to be aware of that, um, their restlessness and he, kind of cut himself short and then just dismissed all of these allegations, which he was supposed to go through in detail, I think, uh, as BS, though he said, um, the expletive himself, and just that just his use of, of this uh, profanity, instead of, you know, uh, ac- providing actual facts and details. Was, uh, was 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 uh, an incredible moment in the crowd because people just went nuts. And it was like, you know, he was kind of telling them that the gloves are off, um, and the rules no longer apply.
0: And even in your book, again, Luke Mogelson, my guest, author of The Storm, is here. The, you talk about the way he would use symbols even to communicate, whether it was that speech, I believe, on the 4th of July in Mount Rushmore to standing in D.C. in front of that church uh, after a peaceful protest was broken up, uh, holding a Bible.
1: Yeah, yeah that, that was interesting because, you know, his, his walk through Lafayette Square to St. John's Church which you just referred to where he raised the Bible. Um, I think that appeared to a lot of people on the left as kind of random and bizarre and almost comical, but uh, to his fault, to people on the right and especially the religious right, um, it was an obvious uh, signal of solidarity to them. And you have to remember this was happening in the context of the George Floyd protests and this, uh uprising among much of the country for and uh, for racial justice and 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 these urgent demands that that this issue of uh police violence and, and systemic racism be addressed and what he was doing there was you know i think signaling to uh white christians that in fact they're the true victims and that it's not true that you know uh that uh, they have been historically privileged. Um, and in fact, I saw that gesture um, repeated uh, and, and copied by several of his followers uh, subsequently, both in Michigan and then later uh, in, in in the Pacific Northwest, in Pennsylvania, and even on January 6th, I saw uh, among the mob that was uh, storming the Capitol initially uh, on the steps, Uh, a man holding up uh, a Bible, just as Trump had done at at St. John's. And then a second time that day, uh, inside the Senate chamber, um, I I followed a group of of rioters into the Senate chamber. And uh, at one point, one of them, you know, went behind the vice president's desk on the dais and found a Bible and held it up and uh, had his picture uh, taken by his fellow rioters uh, exactly as uh, Trump had done in front of St. John's uh, over the summer uh, for uh, photographers and journalists.
0: Uh, when we read your book, and again, uh, readers can get an excerpt at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. You, know, you do explore the possibility that uh, our country is on the brink of a civil war, but it would be a, a war fueled by delusion. Can you describe more by what you mean there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of you know what I was uh, talking about earlier, just the fact that um, that Most of the people who are uh, willing uh, to perpetrate violence um, on behalf of uh, uh, on behalf of uh, Trump and his allies, uh, the 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 most kind of extreme of the far right, uh, they really are uh, motivated by conspiracy theories. Um, by fear of the deep state, the new world order, George Soros, uh, international pedophile rings, um, so so that's something that I have never witnessed before abroad. Um, I've reported in on wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and Ukraine, and I've never seen uh, a popular. Uh, military, uh, militarized uh, mobilization and uprising among citizens based entirely on um, invented uh, threats and, and, and grievances.
2: And when we
0: think about uh, invented uh, threats and grievances, the conspiracy theorists that are embraced by you know some of these groups uh, look no further than Alex Jones, Luke.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Which you all are, uh, unfortunately, more familiar with than most of the country.
0: Now, I wanted to uh, play a clip because we know, Luke, just two weeks ago, President Biden spoke out against these extremist groups. uh, But he also made a point to state that these groups do not represent all Republicans. Let's hear that clip.
2: Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front.
1: Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are
2: MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today
1: is dominated, driven and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country.
0: Luke, what did you make uh, of that speech and what uh, President Biden was communicating there?
1: Yeah, I think it's a fair assessment of the situation, Um, especially the last part in which, you know, the president uh, points out that uh, however, uh, however prevalent they are, Numerically, these extremists and conspiracy theorists, they exercise an outsize influence on the right and on conservatives. And I saw that um, firsthand um, with Alex Jones at the Million MAGA March on November 14th, where you had tens of thousands of Trump supporters from all over the country, all walks of life, the vast majority by no means uh, extreme uh, or, or, uh, or openly adhering to, you know, racist anti-Semitic ideologies or belonging to any of those groups. Um, and the, the event was supposed to be uh, an organized march from Freedom Plaza to the Supreme Court up Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and everybody had packed into Freedom Plaza early in the, the day to hear a roster of speakers Um, uh, and Alex Jones was there, but he was not one of those speakers. However, as usual, he had a powerful bullhorn and he stood up on a planter box and he began, you know, ranting and raving as he does about the new world order, about, you know, uh, Biden being uh, a secret communist agent, uh, et cetera. And just his volume and his uh, the, the kind of energy that he projected attracted more, a larger and larger crowd until um, there were more people listening to Alice Jones than the uh, scheduled speakers. And finally, at one point, while he was competing basically with uh, the people speaking through the PA system, he announced through his bullhorn that the march was beginning now, even though it wasn't supposed to begin for another hour or so. Mm. He got down and he started walking up Pennsylvania Avenue uh, towards the Supreme Court, and everybody followed him. Everybody followed him, and it was Alex Jones accompanied by uh, accompanied by a security contingent of Proud Boys including Enrique Tarrio, the um, national chairman of the Proud Boys, who led the Million MAGA March from Freedom Plaza to the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court, he commandeered the the podium and mic that had been set up there for the scheduled speakers. Again, started talking about uh, the New World Order to a crowd that now extended into the US Capitol grounds. He was then followed by uh, half a dozen uh, members of congress republican members of congress uh led by louis gomer from from texas who essentially uh uh echoed and endorsed uh the kind of uh paranoid rhetoric that he that uh, alex jones had been espousing so like there you had in a very compressed uh physical space and period of time uh alex jones and the proud boys uh uh taking over uh a a gathering of uh, right-wing and Republican Americans.
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public. My guest today, Luke Mogelson, author of the new book, The Storm is Here, An American Crucible. Now we're talking with him in the same week that four men were convicted on felony counts of assaulting or impeding police officers on January 6th. The Washington Post reports one of the men was Patrick McAfee, the third of Ridgefield, Connecticut. He used a riot shield to pin a D.C. police officer to the Capitol's tunnel door. And of the four men convicted on Tuesday, the judge found that only McAfee was trying to stop the counting of votes based on comments he made to friends and to police. After the break, we're going to talk to the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism about its report on data showing the names of Americans listed on membership rolls. So to the far right extremist group, the Oath Keepers, including law enforcement and members of the military. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy nall We've been talking about Luke Mogelson's new book, The Storm Is Here, as he reports and explored the rise of the far-right extremist movement in our country. Now, Hearst, Connecticut reported recently on analysis from the Anti-Defamation League of leaked data that show membership to the far-right extremist group, The Oath Keepers. Data show 476 state residents were among 38,000 people nationwide who were part of this Oath Keepers membership database. That list includes elected officials and military members. For more, joining us on Zoom is Alex Friedfeld, executive, rather investigative researcher with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. Alex, welcome to the show.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: So how did this data come to light? And tell us um, how the ADL has responded here.
2: Yeah, so about a year ago, a journalistic collective uh, released the the names of 38,000 individuals who at one point in time uh, signed up to pay dues to the Oath Keepers. And this was an incredible opportunity uh, because it is very rare. You know, usually when we identify extremists because of work that we do ourselves, it's very rare to have a list of names handed to you, let alone thousands of names. And so we saw this as an opportunity not only to get a sense of, you know, who it is that's attracted you know, to an extremist ideology like the Oath Keepers, but also to identify you know, key people or people holding key positions in society, whether they're in law enforcement, the military, first responders, or even an elected office. And so we dug through every single one of those names uh, with an eye towards identifying people in those key positions. And what we found were hundreds of people across the country uh, who were in these important roles, right And that's really of concern because the fact is these are people who have outsized influence in, within their own communities, and they wield power. And the idea that there's any element of extremism uh, within these ranks is, you know frankly dangerous and unacceptable. Mm.
0: So what happens now? I understand uh, the uh, Anti-Defamation League, you contacted these law enforcement agencies, but you're making a point not to release all of these names. Tell us about why.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we really saw this report more as a, as a data report rather than an unmasking report, um, you know, because the the fact is that, you know, we need as you know, as good data as possible, if we are going to combat the rise of extremism in, in this country. Um, that said, we have been sharing the names, uh, you know, with you know agencies and individuals who have the ability uh, to investigate these individuals further and ask and ask important questions, right? About uh, you know these individuals' connections to the Oath Keepers, whether they are still active members, and the extent to which they uh, support this anti-government ideology.
0: Are there any Connecticut individuals running for office that are in association with the Oath Keepers, Alex? Uh,
2: at this time, we did not identify any uh, people within Connecticut that are running for office or are currently serving uh, in office. And obviously that is is great, um, you know. But, you know, this is a problem that we've seen across the country, right? We, we've identified 81 people uh, who are either holding office right now or, or are currently running. Um, and that's really of concern because, you know, these are people that's uh, – you know, wield power that can really influence their constituents' lives. And the fact that they associate with an extremist ideology or have associated with an extremist ideology in the past raises serious questions about their ability to kind of protect and ensure that everyone within their communities uh, are, you know, uh, taken care of.
0: Has the Anti-Defamation League heard back from these particular law enforcement agencies? uh, I'm just wondering what the response has been.
2: Yeah, so... um, we have heard back from a, a few. There, there, you know, I, I would say a lot of law enforcement agencies mostly kind of thanked us for the work and and said they were going to look into and investigate. Um, and a few did go a step further, which was really great. Um, you know, they reached out. Uh, asked follow-up questions about the nature of the database, who the, exactly the Oath Keepers are, uh, and kind of picked our brains uh, you know, as they attempted to, t- to investigate uh, the members within the ranks who showed up in this database. Mm-hmm.
0: Luke Mogelson is still with us, author of The Storm is here. Luke, uh, uh, respond to what Alex shared, and, and again, uh, this report on uh, you know, all of these Americans that uh, are on these membership uh, roles for the Oath Keepers. Does it speak to how well these groups are mobilizing?
1: Yeah, it's certainly troubling uh, to have you know uh, objective evidence and confirmation of that. Um, I would just add that you know, in addition to an organization with a hierarchy uh, and due paying members, uh, the Oath Keepers is also has also become an ethos um, that is a shared by many many more americans than show up on those rosters um and uh by many more law enforcement um, uh, officers and veterans of of the military um who believe that you know they're that they have a duty to uh protect the constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic with a stress on domestic. Um, But the way that that translates in practical terms for them is um, a duty to protect uh, the country from liberals and Democrats um, who are viewed as, you know, part of mm-hmm. the deep state or, or the new world order.
0: We just have a couple of minutes, Luke. So when we think about this movement that you've reported on, we've got the midterms ahead. There's the 2024 presidential election. You know, What should we be, we be watching for?
1: Um, well, I think that January 6 um, was incredibly uh, galvanizing for the extreme right. Even though they didn't achieve their principal objective, which was to keep Trump in power, uh, among I was there and among all of the participants in in the attempted insurrection that I uh, uh, observed, they were, uh, they, they felt a sense of victory just because they had demonstrated what they were capable of, not only to their enemies, but also to each other, to themselves, and to others. Uh, like-minded Americans, you know, watching on, on TV. And I think that, um, that, uh, if anything, they, uh, are, are are eager and chomping at the bit to, uh, try something similar. And I'll just add very quickly that I also overheard many people at, uh, on January 6th, um, saying to each other that, uh, next time they were going to bring guns. If they came with guns, they would have, uh, they would have solved all their problems.
0: We'll have to leave it there. Luke Mogelson, author of The Storm, is here. Thank you so much for your time on the show. Thank you. I also want to thank Alex Friedfeld, investigative researcher with the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. Alex, thanks for your time as well. Thanks for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.